I'm going to ask you if you would, whether they're at home or wherever you may be viewing online, uh, but obviously those of us here this morning, I'm going to ask you if you would join me in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, I think we have had, let me look, we have had two messages out of Matthew 17. Today will be the third, and Lord willing, we'll conclude uh, this chapter and Lord willing, next week we'll move right on into chapter 18. Things are progressing quickly. I know we've been in this book for a couple of years. I understand that. Is that right? I think a couple of years. Um, but I'll just go ahead and throw this out. We're finishing up chapter 17 today. Lord willing, start 18 next week. Chapter 21 is the Lord's triumphal entry. Now, don't think, oh, then we're about to wrap up the book of Matthew. No, we're not. Because Matthew's going to give seven and a half chapters to one week of time. From the triumphal entry to the Lord's resurrection. And then he gives a few verses uh, following the Lord's resurrection. But we're getting to what we call the passion of the Lord. And it's not that far away in, in our text. So it's really getting close. It's even alluded to in the text. All right. You're in Matthew 17. Quick review. Uh, we do this each week. So at some point before what we're about to read, I don't know how far in advance, how far in the past, the Lord had taken the 12 disciples to the northern extent of Palestine, and there he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter, answering for the 12, says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. After that, six days later, of course, the Lord then foretells his death, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. That's why in a moment you're going to see our first point is going to have the word reviews. Jesus is going to review what he did previously, talking about his, again, his suffering, his upcoming death, and his upcoming re resurrection. But then six days after that, Jesus takes a select few, Peter, James, and John, out of the twelve, those Three go with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He is transformed before them, letting them see some version of his glorified body where his face and body and even his clothes shined in front of them. I'm going to revisit all that text. The day after that, so seven days from that confession up in northern Palestine, the day after they come off the mountain, there's a father who has a boy that is demon-possessed that the other nine disciples could not cast the demon out of them. And the Lord does that, and they want to know, why could we also not cast that demon out? And he says, it is because of your little faith. You had little faith, which we preached on that last week. And that brings us up to this week. I said that particularly because I want you to notice, look at verse 22. Notice the first word. Would you look at it? As. You see the word as. Now, skip into the middle of verse 22, where it says the Son of Man is about to be. You see that? So as they're gathering in Galilee, Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is about to be, so we're getting close. We're really getting close to the upcoming fulfillment of what he talks about in verse 22 and 23. I'm going to read the text in a moment, but now let your eyes look at verse 24 because there's another gap of time. I don't know the amount of gap of time, but look at verse 24. It starts with the word, when they came to Capernaum. And so I'm going to propose to you there's a gap of time between verses 20, 21, and 22. There's a gap of time, not sure how long, perhaps weeks. And then it appears there's going to be another gap of time between verse 23 and 24 when it says, and when they came to Capernaum. So there's going to be this generic somewhere in Galilee, first two verses of our text, and then the rest of our text today is going to be in Capernaum. 
And the reason I'm pointing that out is this. I think by the time we leave chapter 27, we're within just a few weeks, probably less than a month away from the cross. I want you to remember that for context. And I can't go into all the reasons, but it has to do with this particular tax that is being discussed in the second part of our text today. That tax would be brought up and begun to be collected in what we would call March. Uh, One commentator pointed that timeline out. It seems pretty consistent with what the Lord says in verse 22. The Son of Man is about to be delivered, and he means business. I'm getting a little buzz. Is there something on the stage that is not yet cut off that needs to be? Oh, no. Oh, it's the air condition. I got it. It's our vent over there is vibrating. All right. So let's turn that off, and that way let's let the temperature right. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> air condition is important. Just know that little rattling is our vent over there. All right. So here's our text. Let's go into it. With that as our background, verse number 22. So, again, they come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus healed this young man. We don't know how long from that until verse 22, but here we go. As they were gathering in Galilee, some undisclosed area of Galilee, Jesus said to them, this is to the twelve, and we're going to go ahead and reiterate, this is the second time he's going to spell this out crystal clear. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, it's his title for himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Look at it again. They come to Galilee. The Lord tells the twelve, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed. I mean, distressed as if there's no hope. What does that tell you that they heard and what they didn't hear? Right? Catch that. Pay attention. They're greatly distressed at what he says. That's telling me, again, the same pattern. They're hearing some of what he says. They don't hear all of what he says. Because they're just totally, greatly distressed. Some time apparently passes because now we come down to verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, so specifically to the base of of the Lord's ministry for two and a half years has been this city. Peter has a house here. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, the two drachma tax. I'll go ahead and get ahead of myself just for context so we can at least understand a little what we're reading here. This was a Roman-ruled world that was still impacted heavily by Greece And this is a Greek monetary denomination. One drachma was an average day laborer's wage for one day. So we'll talk more about what a suggestion. I'll throw out what that one drachma would be equivalent of. But this tax is a two drachma tax. So here come those tax collectors into Capernaum. And the text says they went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Does your teacher not pay the tax? So apparently Jesus isn't there. It seems he's in the house. Peter's out and about in Capernaum. These tax collectors come to Peter. Does your your teacher not pay the tax? He knows what tax they're talking about. He said, yes. Now, I don't know how confidently Peter... There's lots of ways to say yes. Does Does your teacher not pay the tax? Yes. 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 I gotta go check on it. Yes, 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 he yes, he does. 
Or was it he has seen him do this before? Yes, he pays the tax. There's lots of variation in there. And my mind kind of goes toward the not fully confident yes is how I think. That's just my opinion. Back at verse 24 again, we'll go quickly this time. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, so Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. So that tells me Peter is planning on talking about this. It seems he wants an explanation. He's got some questions. But before he can, he came into the house. Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? <laughs> I wish you guys had time just to read this over and over because it's, I, I just wonder how much this blew Peter's mind. Peter's coming in. He's got a speech ready. He's got a question for the Lord. He walks in the door, and before he can say a word, the Lord says to him, so what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? I wonder if right about them, Peter's thinking, this is amazing because I was actually going to ask you about taxes. Anyway, get back to the text. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? He just gave you a multiple choice. Kings of the earth, they're going to collect revenue and taxes for their kingdom. Are they going to collect it from their sons or from others? Well, that's easy. I could pass that. Verse 26, and when he said, from others. Jesus said to him, I imagine, again, reading between the lines, so don't let me harm the text, but I'm going to throw this out. From whom do kings of the earth gather their taxes and tolls and customs? Again, taxes on goods, taxes on services, taxes on people. Just for living in the kingdom, you have to pay so much. If you do business, then you pay the toll, the custom tax. So who, who do they collect that from? Their sons or from others? From others. Imagine the Lord like, you got that right. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now pause right there. I, Does your master not pay the tax? Yes. Off he goes. Comes to the Lord, getting ready it seems, but first he gets cut off. Peter, i got a question for you. Simon, kings of the earth, they make their sons pay or others pay? Others. That's right. So then the sons are free. Are y'all already making the connection? Jesus has just made a point, and I'm picturing Peter's getting the point. I almost, in my mind, wonder if the Lord could almost have paused. I do a lot of reading between the lines, trying not to harm the text. I almost wonder if the Lord could have said, Peter, you looked like you had something you were going to ask me. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think I need to, yeah. However, look at verse 27. However, Peter, are we clear? The sons are free. You understand that? The sons are free. However, yes, Lord, we're clear. I understand. The sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Okay. But are we clear? Yes, Lord, we're clear. And this is the only miracle in the New Testament that doesn't actually give the recording of the actual miracle take place. We take it by faith that that's exactly what happened. Though Matthew, for whatever reason, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did not spell out the actual doing of it. But we assume that, assume that it took place. Notice two things. We only have two points. First two verses, and then we'll look at the second, two, second four verses. Second set. Notice number one, Jesus reviews his death and resurrection. Jesus reviews his death 
and resurrection. I call this a review because he's already said these things very clearly um, back up in Caesarea Philippi when he asked, who do men say that I am? And then the Lord began to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem. He told the 12, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of these certain people, and then he would be killed and rise from the dead. Peter rebuked him on that occasion. They go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. On the way down, the Lord says, don't tell anyone what you saw on the Mount of Transfiguration until after my res- until I am raised from the dead. And then they start a conversation based off of what the Lord says about being raised from the dead. But that was only a small group. This is, again, the 12. And so that's why we're going to say... This is Jesus reviewing with them the second time, crystal clear, his death and resurrection. So notice verse 22. As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son, of a man is a, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. First thing I want you to notice is the word delivered. The word delivered can have two meanings, and I think both are brought to bear on the text. It can mean handed over to, or it can mean to be betrayed. I didn't look it up, but I'm pretty sure the King James Version, I think, uses the word betrayed. If you were to go look at lots of translations, sometimes you would see the same word translated as delivered or handed over or betrayed to the hands of men. So look at it again. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men or delivered into the hands of men or handed over into the hands of men. So here's what I want to ask. Who exactly is delivering the Lord over to the hands of men? Who or what? There's two dynamics at play. There is a human element that is very real, very practical. It actually happened in time and space, and that person is responsible and is paying for their actions now and through eternity. They will. But there's also another element that is bigger than that one, and that's what I'll talk about just for a moment. First of all, the human element, we know that the idea of betrayed is true because one of Jesus' disciples named Judas actually betrayed the Lord. So how did Jesus end up being given over into the hands of those wicked men? Judas betrayed his Lord. He did that, and he is responsible. But I want to tell you this morning there's something greater and bigger in spite of and what, what Judas did on a human level, on an individual level, is part of what is bigger and greater. You say, what's, what's the greater cause? What led to the Lord being handed over to the hands of men? Hold your spot here because we're going to be right here most. We're only going to go one time here, and then at the end we're going to hit a couple of passages very quickly. Put a marker here. Go to Acts chapter 2. Flip over there. Let's see the other greater stronger thing that is handing Jesus over into the hands of men, and then we want to draw some conclusions from that. This is a verse lifted out of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. So if you have your Bible open, and the reason I had you turn there, I should have put verse 22 with it. In a moment, you'll see 23 on the screen. Back up to verse 22. Here we go. So this is the day of Pentecost. Peter and the 120 that were in the upper room are now filled with the Holy Ghost. And they're out preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. Verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, they know that's a man. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Watch verse 23, you'll see it on the screen. This Jesus delivered up, delivered, there's our idea, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, Jeff, who exactly is going to hand over Jesus into the hands of sinful men? Well, Judas betrayed him, but ultimately something bigger is going to cause the Lord Jesus to be put into the hands of men. And here we see it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Then, so that's the big thing. And then now Peter brings it back to the individual Jews there in Jerusalem that day. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, he says, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death. So it's your fault, but beneath it all, there was this great plan of God. Write this note. As we're studying what Jesus is saying in verse 22 and 23 of Matthew 17, we learn this idea. Sinful man did what sinful man did to the Lord Jesus, but they could do nothing to Christ that God did not previously already design for his own purposes. So mankind did what they did. They were cruel and they were responsible and wicked in it, but they did nothing to the Lord Jesus Christ that God the Father and even the counsel of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit in eternity past determined that it would already be done to the Lord because it fit the design of his ultimate purposes. I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out. Sometimes you'll hear us, there's a controversial word in Acts 2.23, and it's that word foreknowledge. Now right here, notice, it's talking about the foreknowledge that had to do God's foreknowledge and God's determined plan. The King James even used words it this way, catch this, he was given over by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That does, Please get this concept. This idea of the foreknowledge of God in Acts 2.23 does not mean that God knew in advance. He merely, simply knew in advance what wicked men would do to his son. You know it means much more than that. God actually designed and planned and foreordained what mankind would do to his son. How that correlates in the mind of God that God designs and ordains a plan that involves mankind's sin being incorporated into the plan of God. I don't understand it. All I know is this. I want you to draw, what, four or five conclusions from this text. Write these down. Number one, from verse 22 and 23, we learn that God has a plan. God has an ultimate plan. And I'm going to propose to you that it is on schedule. Everything in the plan is on schedule. All the highs, we love the highs. Look what God is doing. This is the great things the Lord has done. All the lows, which we would look at at this, but this was sin. This was an act of sin. This was part of the plan of God. God used this to bring about our salvation. We don't have salvation if the Lord is not put to death on the cross. Let me throw this out. All of the mundane things that are in between, just living life, is all part of the ultimate plan of God, and everything's right on schedule. I started the message today alluding to the words as and the word when and is about to be. And that tells me, Jeff, we've got lots of gaps of time where the Lord and his disciples are fulfilling the plan of God, but it was apparently just some day-to-day things. They're walking from here to there and walking from there to there. And so it's all part of the plan of God. Everything's on schedule. There's an ultimate plan. That's why we put so much weight on Romans 8, 28, and 29. All things, all things. The big, the seemingly little, all things work together for the good to them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the great plan of God, and everything that's been happening is part of that plan. 
God is going to be glorified. Secondly, note this quick point. God reveals, this text tells me that God reveals much of his plan to those who love him. So if you love the Lord, you say, well, I love the Lord. Have you noticed that the Lord reveals much of his plan? Not all. He doesn't give us all the details. He comes up to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. He just starts telling Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, by the way. You found favor with me. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to do this and this and this. After that, the Lord comes up, and he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What does he do first? He talks to Abraham, who's his friend. Not because he has to, but often the Lord shares his plan with those of us who love him. If... We're willing to study and learn and listen. When the Lord shows us, he doesn't give us all the details, but we know much of what the Lord's plan is going to be moving forward. Third thing I want you to get from these verses, the key figure in the plan of God in human history is the Lord Jesus Christ. We could even say the key moment in human history is what he's predicting in verses 22 and 23, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the key figure. His death is the central and key event. As if it's not already stated plainly, just so that we write it and say it quickly, number four, Jesus knew every detail of his upcoming suffering in advance. He knew it in advance before it was happening, and yet it never deterred him from heading to Jerusalem and taking up his cross. You say, Jeff, there's another dot. Well, this one I want to give you and just talk about it just for a moment. Would you write this down? Verses 22 and 23 prove to us the complete, and should I add the words, utter depravity of man. This text proves the complete and utter depravity of man. You say, Jeff, where's that in the text? If you write that, look at one more time, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So literally, God's great plan, even using what Judas does, delivers the Son of God into the hands of men, and then we see that they killed him. Think about that. When I say the depravity of man, what goes through your mind? What thoughts? There's some of you right now are like, I have no, no, no idea what that means. I don't know what you mean. I don't know what the word depravity means. Some of you are like, I think I have an idea. Depravity is probably like depraved. So you're saying that mankind is depraved. That's exactly what we're saying. Can I spell it out in three ways? This is proof of the depravity of man. Number one, that everyone who was born in this world after Adam and Eve, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all born in sin. We're born in sin. Being born in sin means that we're born with guilt of prior sin. You say, why are we born? That's not fair. Why are we born in guilt of prior sin if we're just now being born? The Bible teaches that we were actually in the loins of Adam when he committed the sin. And so we were there in him committing the sin. And so the moment that you're even conceived, you're conceived in guilt of prior sin. But now we've also inherited, number two, a sin nature. So that once we're actually coming out of the womb, we find sin attractive. You find sin attractive. You like sin, and so do I. That's why, number three, we all inevitably commit acts of sin. We all commit acts of sin because we're drawn to sin, and we were born guilty of prior sin before we were even born. That's the depravity of man. You say, Jeff, how's that in the text? Watch. When God puts his 
perfect sun in the hands of men, it takes them no less than 15 hours to do three phases of a mock Jewish trial, three phases of a mock Roman trial, find the perfect, the perfect sinless son of God guilty, and then we crucified him on a cross and put him to death. That's the depravity of man. Now, here's the kickers. Here's what you got to understand. These aren't the most wicked, sinful men who's ever walked the face of the earth. These aren't like the most naturally cruel, wicked men. That's not what we're talking about here this morning. These are men that everyone in their society would have looked up to as the best of people. But it goes more than that. Not only, the t- back in chapter 16, verse 21, I'll not turn there, but the Bible tells us who are these men. These were the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes of what nation? This is the one nation on earth that has an actual, the one nation that has a covenant with God. I think a lot of people in America are very misled in thinking America has a covenant with God. America does not have a covenant with God. We don't have one. We have individual people who are Christians. I was talking with a family member just the other day, and we were talking about my son being in the military, and I was talking about, hey, I really struggle with some things, but I'm really hoping we don't go to war, this, that, and the other. And the person made the comment, said, well, at least God's on our side. And I said, is he? Well, yeah, and it was almost like, matter of fact, like, why would you even say that? I said, is he? What does the Bible say? Blessed is the nation whose Say it if you know it. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Is it true to say that Yahweh, Jehovah God, is the God of the United States? I dare say the numbers do not bear that out. The people whose God is the Lord in the United States are the minority. And it's shrinking, it seems like. I look at I'm really chasing a rabbit. I'm going to catch it, though, while I'm at it. I'm going to go and get him. As I look at the history of the United States, you know what I see? The hand of God on us all along the way. We've had the blessings of God. Because I think never was the United States a completely Christian nation, but we had seemingly, it seems like the majority of people had faith in the God of the Bible. But we're going further and further away from that. I am fearful. If we were to go to, you know, God would surely help us out. Why, do, why would we think that? We have no reason to think that. You know, Jeff, I don't like what you Get off of that rabbit. Okay, let's get back on the text. All right? The depravity of man. These are the best of men in the one nation as a covenant of God. This is the one nation that has these Old Testament, we begin somewhere around right here, that have the, the, these actual special written revelations from God. This is the one nation that has that. This is the best of them. So if you take the whole United States and you were to look at all the spiritual leaders, the ones that everybody would look up to, I mean, People like me would be not even on there, so way down on the list. These are the people that you're looking up to the greatest. They're going to get it right. They think they are right in putting the Son of God to death. They think he's wrong, but he's actually right. And mankind is so blind they can't even see when the Son of God is standing in front of them. The best life that's ever lived on earth put in our hands and we killed him, we crucified him. That's the depravity of man. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why when we say from Scripture that if God does not initiate the relationship with us and come to us and draw us to him and drag us to him, then it's never going to happen. You and I will never go after the Lord. We'll never understand the Lord. We can never please the Lord. We can never earn a relationship with the Lord based on our works. We're depraved. This is an example of it. Right before us. One more thought. Because we preached this same idea back on Easter. So I'm not going to delve into all the parts. 
But notice again the last four words of verse 23. They were greatly distressed. Mark 9.32 says the disciples... I'm not going to turn there. Mark says about this that the disciples didn't understand. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And they were afraid to ask him. Let that sink in. They didn't understand. Could you make any sense out of what Jesus just said? Patronize me, okay? Just, just go along. I know we've read it multiple times. Would you look one more time at verse 22 and 23? Just look at it one more time. And here's my question. What's not clear? What needs change to make this more clear? Would you look at verse 22? As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, so here's what they don't understand. It is over their head. Just, it's like, what does that mean? I'm asking, could this have been more clear? Jesus said to them, the Son of Man... Now, maybe he could make that more clear and just straight up say I, but they would have no trouble with that. They know he's talking about himself. The Son of Man, is this clear or not? The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Any questions? They miss it. Couldn't be more clear. And this actually ties back to the spiritual deadness of mankind left to ourselves apart from God. Here's what I find. Grace you so often the Lord is crystal clear in his word. And we miss it, or we refuse it. I'm going to give you two reasons, two main reasons. We don't like it. Or it goes against what we already think. may even like that. I wish that was true, but it goes against what I already think. I have my preconceived notions. I don't like it, or, now that's not how I've been taught, and so we literally refuse. The Lord could not have been more clear, and yet they rejected what he was teaching. The fact that they're greatly distressed tells me that there's one main thing that they're still not even getting. They're starting to get on board with the idea that Jesus is going to give himself over and he's going to be killed. And he's apparently really serious about it. And that's why they're greatly distressed. But they never really receive the great promise of the resurrection until after it's already accomplished. Here's what I find. You and I get greatly distressed in this life when we only grasp and believe and hold on to part of what God says. When we only get part of what God says, then we too get all worked up and all stressed out. Somebody may walk out of here while, today and you're already worked up because, man, that got me thinking now. What if we do go to war and is God's hand not on the United States anymore? And this is really, really, oh my goodness. And you've already forgot the first point that I had you write down a while ago, that there is an ultimate plan of God and everything's right on schedule and it works out for good to those that love the Lord. You got to take it all. Got to take it all. Number two, this morning, Jesus, so we're moving to the second set of four verses. Jesus willingly pays the temple tax. So look at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. So what is this tax? So just very brief background. First of all, please understand this. This is not the hated, despised publicans, tax collectors in the idea of the Roman tax collectors. The notoriously corrupt tax collectors. These are Jewish tax collectors who are collecting a Jewish tax. So what is this tax? This is an annual tax that was put on Jewish males. Females didn't have to pay it. Jewish males age 20 and up. Here's the key. It began in Exodus chapter 30 when the tabernacle was being built, knowing that the items 
of the tabernacle would have to be kept up, the Lord said that the Jews in the nation of Israel, 1,500 years prior to this, would be levied with a tax, age 20 years males, of two days' wages. Back then, the Old Testament terminology was a half shekel. Here, we're in a Greek world where it's called two drachmas per man. And so a half shekel equals two drachmas. One drachma equals an average man's daily wage for a day labor, so not super specialized type of work. So I'm just going to throw a nice round number out. So we're not talking about a super, super tiny throw a few bucks in type of tax, but we're not talking about an enormous tax either. We're talking about something that if an average man, if you're going to go out tomorrow, say I need some, some work done on a fence, some leaves raked up, a little bit of grass, I'll probably work them about seven, eight hours. We're talking about about $100. For an average day laborer's wage. So two days of that would be about 200 bucks per person per year. That was the annual tax that we're talking about. And so two people would be four drachmas. Four drachmas equals one shekel. So often two would go together and say, we'll go use one shekel. And we'll put that in. Actually, the Greek word for that coin here that's used is the idea of stator. But using the, the text blends some Greek terminology with the Old Testament idea of a shekel that would be for two so with that in mind one commentator actually a couple threw this out so I'm going to throw it to you apparently by the time of Christ many of the Jews were no longer paying this temple tax this, this was for the upkeep of the tabernacle when the tabernacle gave way to the temple David wanted to build a more solid a little more permanent idea structure than the tabernacle the Lord allowed that but you're not allowed to build it so Solomon builds it but it's going to take upkeep and it's going to take a lot of money so all the Jewish males, males age 20 years old and up are going to need to pay about equivalent in our day and age about 200 bucks a piece a year for the upkeep but the problem is by Jesus day many of them are no longer paying the tax is that why because that struck me why do these tax collectors ask Peter such a negatively worded, anticipating a negative answer? Does your teacher not pay the taxes as though they're expecting him to say, no, he doesn't pay the tax? Is that simply why? A lot of them don't do it now, and so is he one of those that doesn't pay the tax? And apparently they didn't have the authority to make it mandatory. It was like if you're patriotic, you can pay the tax, so they throw it out. But Peter says, yes, he does can also throw out maybe another reason, two other reasons. There's two things that by this time the Lord had already said, and maybe they've heard of this, and therefore they assume that Jesus is one of those who doesn't pay the tax. Back in chapter 12, verse number 6, the Lord had already said that one greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. And I'm sure those scribes and Pharisees went back to Jerusalem and said, you want to know what that guy said? He says he's greater than the temple. And word probably spread. Maybe that's why they ask it this way. But we know this much that John chapter 2 verse 19 has already been stated and that was actually down in Jerusalem and they would have heard of this. There's this man running around, this guy named Jesus of Nazareth who says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. So they're apparently getting the impression that he's against the temple. The Lord's not against the temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. You destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. He was talking about his resurrection. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. But apparently they're thinking he's negative. He's down against the temple. So now look at verse 25. Does your teacher pay, not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, now watch this for a moment. I've alluded to it in our first reading, but really get it here. Because I want to share with you a brief point the Lord spoke to me about this week. He said, yes. The idea, yes, he pays. And I believe he's heading to the house. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I think he's coming in. He's going to ask this question. Hey, I've been asked if you pay the temple tax. You do that, right? You do that, right? 
I think that's what I think that's what he's getting ready to do. But before he does, the Lord hits him with this question, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? So here comes Peter. He's got his question ready, getting ready to hit off this big debate with the Lord. But before he can, he gets hit with this question from the Lord that I think would be shocking to Peter. Help me out because it's your next note. I want you, you guys to tell me, what do you see in verse 25? Jesus is apparently in the house when this conversation takes place. Peter, having had a conversation away from the Lord, comes back. There's been a conversation about taxes with tax collectors. He's going to come and talk to the Lord about taxes, but before he can get there, Jesus springs a tax discussion question with him. What characteristic, what attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ is on display in verse 25? His foreknowledge, his omniscience. Does everybody see that? Did you see it in verse 22 and 23? So what we, one thing I noticed this week as I started reading this, all I know is the Lord's omniscience is saturating this passage. In verse 22 and 23, he says, I am about, it's soon going to happen. I'm going to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill me. I will rise again the third day. Here comes Peter after a conversation. Hey, Peter, got a question for you, and it has to do exactly with what he was just talking about. And oh, by the way, the last verse of our text The Lord's going to send him out to go catch a fish, and the Lord knows all the details about what's going to happen before it happens. The Lord knows everything. It's kind of comical. I actually thought about Peter walking in the house and getting ready to ask this and the Lord's question. Do y'all remember the first time you started getting those Internet ads on your phone and your tablet and your laptop? Do you remember when it was so shocking, like, this this is amazing. This is like, they're like, read my mind. They have read my mind. Let let, let me explain. It may be, the Lord may let you go buy a pop-up camper. It may may very well be the Lord's will for you to buy a pop-up camper. But don't assume it's the Lord's will for you to buy a pop-up camper just because a sale of some business in Greenville keeps showing up on your phone or your tablet that has a sale, a Memorial Day sale on pop-up campers, and it's the exact kind that you have been thinking about. I've just been thinking about that. What you don't realize is there's an algorithm that's been tracking your searches and even your conversations. I'll probably go home today and get an advertisement on my phone because my phone is on right now. I have it on silent. Every now and then she'll say, what was that? In the service, I've had that happen. I'll probably go home today and have advertisements for pop-up campers. I'm not in the market for pop-up campers. Deanna would, that's not Deanna's speed. A lot of you, that's great. You enjoy yourself, knock yourself out. Don't assume this is God's will. God has spoken. It is so clear. This is his sign. No, that's an algorithm, okay? When Peter walks in the house and the Lord starts talking to him about the very thing that he's been talking to these other people, now that's totally different. I want you to get this. What's that telling us? The Lord knows all things. All things. I could just leave it right there. The Lord knows all things. I don't have anything deep here. I'm just going to share. This is me. The Lord's been impressed upon me. Jeff, tell the people, I know everything they're thinking. I know everything. He knows everything you've been thinking. He knows everything you've been saying. He knows everything you've been saying. We talk too much. 
We say the wrong thing. We don't talk enough in some circumstances, and we talk way too much. And the Lord is there the whole time. He knows everything you've been saying. He knows everything you've been doing. The good and the sin. That's why he's able to convict us so accurately. He's there the whole time. He knows it all. He's heard it all. He saw it all. He knows how you're feeling right now. The good and the bad. This is why he's able to judge mankind so accurately. He sees it all. You cannot conceal anything from the Lord. He sees it. Here comes Peter. Thinks he has a discussion. Before you walk in, I already know what you've been talking about, and I'm going to answer your question with a question and a follow-up statement. The sons are free. Are we clear, Peter? Yes, Lord. All right. What I'm talking about everywhere I go, man. I better make sure. That's the thought that the Lord's been leaving with me. Jeff, tell the people, live with more awareness that I know everything they're thinking, everything they're saying. You're going to leave here in a few minutes. You're going to start talking on the way home. Are you going to start gossiping and slandering and anger, lies, whatever? The Lord hears it all. He knows it all. Every conversation you're having, every thought you're having, everything you're doing. I'll tell you the second thought that I've been having this week. Someone was doing something for someone else. I'll just go ahead and tell you. They were doing something for me. And hardly anybody would know what they were doing. And the thought just kept coming back to me. No one knows what this person is doing. Just a few of us would know what this person is doing. But the Lord has been watching. And he knows why they're doing it. And he knows the help that it is. And so a few times I caught myself just like, Lord, you know what they're doing. Would you just put your favor on them for what they did? He knows. He's watching. That's why he's able to reward us so accurately at the judgment. Look at the Lord's question in verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? This is so foreign to us because we don't live, we've never, I've never lived under an absolute king. But here's the basic idea. Kings in that day had absolute authority, and you need to raise money for the kingdoms. Let me give you two scenarios. You ready? Here's scenario number one. Here's a king who's over a nation. He's only over his nation, so he has citizens. Here's another king, but his kingdom is a conquering kingdom, and so they've conquered other, not this one, but they've conquered these other nations. This one's kind of strong, but they're only to themselves. Over here's this one, and they've conquered other nations. So this king has citizens. That one has citizens, but this one also has subjects. And so this king needs to raise funds, so he's going to have to tax his citizens. This king may tax his citizens. He may let them slide. If he does tax them, it's going to be at a less rate, but he's definitely going to tax the subjects because he has to raise. But here's what we can agree on. Neither king taxes their sons. Neither king taxes their sons. We're not in that world of absolute kings. That's the way most countries were ruled by a single king back in that day. But I thought about this. Picture someone in the United States, I mean, super, super wealthy, and they own multiple resorts. I mean, like luxury resorts, different places around the world. Picture another person, and they are super, super wealthy, and they own a whole chain of restaurants nationwide. Picture another one, and they own, they're super, super wealthy, and they own rental car business. I have no idea how it works, but let's just say the owner of Budget or Enterprise or Hertz is an individual, and they own those all around the country. I can guarantee you that the one who owns the multiple resorts, when their kids want to go on vacation, actually, we don't have to pretend. Do you think the Trump kids have to pay when they go over to Scotland? Do you think the Trump kids pay when they go down to Florida? Do you think they pay to go stay up at Trump Tower? No. 
No, they're not going to. Do you think the person who owns the restaurant chain all around the country, do you think their kids, when they're traveling around, hey, we need something to eat? Oh, we'll swing in. They're not going to pay. They don't have to pay. The ones who their parent owns the rental car, they get to drive any of the car anytime they want. They just walk up and, oh, you're so-and-so's kid. Pick one. And off they go. You don't pay. That's the point that the Lord is making. He's using an analogy that God has this tabernacle that gave way to this temple and it requires upkeep and so the Lord has taxed the people of Israel the males of Israel 20 years old and up but just like earthly kings do not tax their own sons God if he has children is not going to tax the children and so the Lord tells Simon Peter you do understand what I'm saying the sons are free right I got it you say Jeff you said if God has children get ready to take a note Peter had very recently, perhaps weeks before, I'm assuming this is now weeks previous, he has called Jesus the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus says in the moment, confirms that, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't show that to you, but my Father. He confirms what you said is true. I am the Christ the Son of the living God. They go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. God the Father himself with his voice, his own voice, speaks and confirms a second time, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter knows that's going on. He heard the Lord confirm his, test, his, his um, confession that Jesus is the Christ, son of the living God. He hears God the Father say it. And now he comes down off the mountain. And a few, few weeks later, the Lord says this. Write this note. Jesus' statement about sons being free is the Lord Jesus' way of saying that he is declaring he is truly indeed the one and only son of God by nature. And because he's the son of God by nature, he's exempt from paying the tax. Peter, do you understand what I'm saying? I don't have to pay the tax. They want to know, do I pay the tax? You told them I did. I do. Do you understand? Kings don't tax their sons. The temple is owned by my father. It's my father's house. I don't have to pay the tax. Did I get it? Here's the stance officially. Jesus does not have to pay the tax. He is free from the tax. He's the son of God. That's the house of God in that day. He's free to pay the tax. I don't have to pay the tax. However, now we need to talk about verse 27. However, Jeff, what needs said about verse 27? Jesus pays the tax. He's, here's what he's saying. Peter, are we clear? I don't have to pay the tax. Yes, my Lord. You're the son of God. It's God's house. They have to pay. We have to pay. You don't have to pay. Exactly. Why did Jesus pay the tax? You say, Jeff, it's right there in the verse, verse number 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take, take a first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel, the idea of a four drachma coin. Take that and give it to them for me and for, for yourself. Official stance, he doesn't have to, so why does he do it? Can I offer to you two reasons, and we'll get to the second one in a moment. I'll have you write it. First one, I'm going to propose that Jesus paid the temple tax to set an example for you and I. It's not on your handout, I just want you to hear it. The Lord paid his tax. Later on, we're going to find out another question about the Roman tax. And the Lord's going to say, pay your taxes. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar. Official, here's what the Lord said. I don't have to pay. Just be clear. I don't have to pay. I am free, yet I'm going to pay it. Why? So those people there at Graceview in 2021 will know that it is my will for people to pay their taxes. So the Lord pays his temple tax, and the Lord pays his Roman government tax. You say, well, 
The Lord didn't live in our day, and I hate what's going on in our country, and therefore I'm not going to hang on. I promise you the Lord would not sanction, and he was not pleased by how the temple or the Roman Empire were being operated. Yet he does not use that as as an excuse to not pay his tax. He still pays the tax. These are the very people down at the temple who are going to kill him. They're corrupt. They're evil. They're wicked. They're the best that Israel had to offer, but they're depraved, left to themselves. And the Lord still pays the tax. That tells me, Jeff, God's will, pay the tax. But what if they're using it for things that that pay your taxes? Second reason we know that the Lord paid the tax is so that the uninformed would not be offended. The uninformed would not be offended. Look at verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go fishing, get this money, and give it to them from me and for yourself. Write this down. By Jesus paying the temple tax that he does not owe, Jesus illustrates there are some things that his people must do. And can I add, we must do or not do. I didn't have room for that. So hear it again. Jesus is illustrating to us there are some things that his people must do or not do so that we don't offend others. I say offend others, and I know how I would take that how we hear it here in the south, I'm offended. That's not the idea here. What verse 27 actually means, so catch this, however, not to give offense. This is important. The idea of to give offense gives the idea of putting a stumbling block in someone's way so that they more easily fall into sin. And so what the Lord is saying, I don't have to pay this tax, but I'm going to pay it, lest by my actions I put a stumbling block in someone's way that causes them to actually fall in sin. Though I don't have to do it. For me not to do it is not sin. So let me ask it this way. What's it called if every other Jewish male in Israel, 20 years old and up, what's it called if they don't pay the temple tax? That is called, I'm hearing a s- sin. Sin. It'd be sin. And so the Lord is saying, Apparently, watch, he doesn't want anyone running around saying, Jesus doesn't pay the temple tax, so I'm not paying the temple tax. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Whoa, 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 time out, buddy. Do you know why he doesn't pay the temple tax? I don't care why. All I know is he doesn't pay it, and I'm not paying it either. I don't want to pay it. It's sin for you. It's not sin for him. He's the son of God. He's exempt. He's free. You have to pay. So the Lord says, lest they be offended, I don't want to put a stumbling block in their way. Now, if I had time, and if we were doing a series, we would pause and we would, listen to me, we would revisit. So I want you to write, actually, they're already on your handout. There are two passages of Scripture that we would pause and we would go launch into and do a study. Because everybody get it, the Lord is saying there are some things that His people don't have to do that they should do to keep from offending and causing others to fall into sin. Or we could say there are some things that we as God's people don't do. So some things we do, some things we don't do, so that we don't cause others to fall into sin. But we don't have to do them. We officially don't have to do them, but we do them or not do them so that we don't cause others to fall into sin. But I don't have time to go to Romans 14. I don't have time to go to 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. So I'm going to invite you, because some of what I'm going to say is is just going to be very general and broad, and it's not going to make a lot of sense. But I want to give you some principles based off the Lord's actions, verse 27. Here we go. You ready? Listen. First listen, catch it. Gracefully, we need to remember many Christians 
So here, we're not writing yet. I just want you to taste this. We need to remember that many Christians have different levels of spiritual knowledge. It's in this room right now. There are all kinds of levels of spiritual knowledge. Some here have more spiritual knowledge than I do. Some have less. Some have less than you. Some have more than you. There's all ranges of spiritual knowledge in this room. So we have different ranges and levels of of spiritual knowledge. Number two, we even have different tastes. We even have different personalities. This next one's key. We We have different life experiences. We have different cultures. I'm talking about Christians all around the world. We have different cultures. And even right here where we live, we have different microcultures. I, I made that word up the other day. We have different mi- I grew up in western North Carolina in the early 70s under a father and a mother that started a construction company. So my life was where my dad came home every day from construction work and for leisure we went hunting and fishing and so we always had 15 or 20 bear dogs and coon dogs right that's my culture some of you are like that is not my culture I married a girl from Philadelphia total different microculture Jeff what's your point let me read it quickly Many Christians, we need to remember, many Christians have different levels of spiritual knowledge, different tastes, different personalities, different life experiences, and come from different cultures so that that leads us to conclude and and have different scruples within us about what constitutes sin. So from my culture, I may have been taught this word is a bad word, and you're like, that's not a bad word. That word is not in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that word. I've been taught it's wrong. And if you keep saying it, you're going down in my view. You're committing sin. And so what should that person do when they're around me? If I've been taught that's a bad word where I grew up. You say, well, they have liberty in Christ. And so they should just keep on saying that word till eventually I get over it. That's not what the Lord does. Write these down. Now here we'll have you write down quickly. Several conclusions that we draw from verse 27, draw from Romans 14, from 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. Write these down and go home and just read those passages and meditate on them because this is being exemplified by Jesus here. I'm gonna hit, I don't have time to develop them. Number one, know why, why you do what you do for biblical reasons. Be able to give a Bible reason why you do what you do. If you say something is wrong, give a Bible reason for it. If you say we shouldn't do something, is there a Bible reason for it or is it just your culture and your taste and your personal experience? Number two, write this down. We need to understand the difference between primary beliefs and behaviors and secondary beliefs and behaviors. We need to understand the difference between primary beliefs and behavior. We have primary beliefs. We have primary behaviors. Some of my primary beliefs have to do with the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus is the Son of God. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the literal resurrection of the Lord in the, in the same body that was put to death on the cross. I believe that salvation is only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ given to us by the grace of God. We never earn it. It is all His doing. He initiates the whole thing. He even has to give us faith to believe. These are some of my core fundamental primary beliefs. And maybe just a few others of those. But there are other things that are secondary. I had a conversation in my office before church just last week. And a brother in Christ who's not able to be here today, but he and I were sharing some things. He's, he has a different view on what I would call a secondary issue. He did it perfectly. He, he has a different view than I currently hold. And he's just like, listen, I want to give you an idea. Study it. Open your mind to this. And we both agreed, hey, that sounds great. He did it perfectly. Right now, I don't hold his view. He doesn't hold mine. That's fine. It's a secondary issue. Number three, write this down. Refuse to judge other people on issues that the Bible is silent about. Just make up your mind. I'm not going to. You may say, this, this is wrong. Jeff used the idea of a, a word a while ago. 
Well, you may think that word is awful and terrible. You've been taught that it is. But if it's not something in the Scripture, be careful about pushing that on other people where the Bible is silent about it. Number four. Here's really where we're getting to the heart of verse 27. Do not despise other believers who are less informed in the faith. Sometimes those who are more mature in the faith, typically those people have fewer rules because they understand the idea of grace more. When they hear about people who have lots and lots of rules because they don't yet understand grace and they have lots of man-made rules that they want to put on everyone else, often those who are stronger in the faith despise that person and just want to avoid them and stay away. Don't. Well, if I'm around them, then I'm going to have to give up some things that I like to do or not. I'm going to have to do some things I don't normally have to do or I'm going to have to stop doing some things that I like to do. I hope I didn't say the same thing twice there. I'm just going to stay away from them. No, 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 no. Spend time with them. Okay, I'll straighten them out. No, 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 don't straighten them out. Love them. Write this down. Here's a great principle. Love other people more than your own rights. You say, but Jeff, the liberty that we have in Christ and the freedom, I'm going to get to that in a minute. That's where we'll finish in just a moment. But we're to love other people more than our own rights. Remember this. Jesus did not have to pay the tax. But what does he do? He makes it clear. You understand? I don't have to pay. But I'm going to pay. To finish that note, your liberty in Christ matters. Yes, it matters. But love and ministry matter more. Love for that person and ministry. Keeping an open door of ministry. I was able to hear the South Carolina Baptist Convention president this year, Alex Sands, speak a couple of weeks ago, and maybe three weeks ago, I believe it was, and he made the following quote that I'm going to expand on just a moment. I think this is close. Deanna wanted a word for word, and I couldn't give her word for word because he spoke it. It wasn't written. Catch what I'm about to say. He says, don't sacrifice your influence just to make a point. Don't sacrifice. He was using it in context where so many, watch, something's burning in their soul, and they have social media posts, this happens, and they might be right. And off they go, boom, something that is flaming and super emotional and stirs everybody up. And this half of the people love them now, and this half of the people absolutely hate them. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he says. Don't sacrifice your influence, just make a point. You've just alienated this whole group of people on stuff that's not even primary or even secondary doctrine. Why would you do that? So the way I would add to his statement is say this. Don't sacrifice your influence just to make a point or to indulge yourself. I don't have to pay the tax. But the Lord did so as not to cause others to stumble into sin. I'm seeing my clock. Can I throw this out? Do y'all remember the Jerusalem Council? Acts 15. Remember that? Do y'all remember? Raise your hand if you're kind of familiar. Raise your hand if you're kind of. I'm not going to go into it. I mean, I wish I had time to stop and preach on that. Jerusalem Council. Do Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus have to be circumcised and start keeping the Old Testament laws to really be saved? And so they met and they determined, nope, absolutely not. We can't bring Gentiles in, put them under the yoke of the law. The law never saved the Jews anyway. We've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Why do we think the Gentiles are going to get saved by some grace and some faith in Christ and by keeping the law? It didn't work for us. not going to work for them. But do y'all remember they wrote this letter to send out to the new Gentiles who were coming to Christ. And this letter had four things in it. 
It was basically saying, if you'll do these, you do well. It doesn't say if you'll do these, then you'll really be saved. It's saying you'll do well. Do you remember any of those? I know there was one cell group of our men's group that batted this back and forth. So they'll be especially fresh on this. There were four things. They come up with a letter, kind of the conclusion. You do not have to keep the Old Testament law. You don't have to get circumcised, but they're suggesting. We, we ask you to do this, Gentiles. And so they put these four things I forget the order, don't commit fornication. That's all through the Scripture. But they also say, don't eat meat or things that have been offered to idols. Don't eat things that are strangled and blood. So here's where my mind went. Paul, in Romans and in Corinthians, is later on, I believe in progressive revelation, Paul later on is going to come back and circle back and show us that three of those things are not defiling in and of themselves. What if I have too much blood in my meat? I like my meat. Rare. I don't. Maybe you do. You wicked sinner, you've defiled yourself if you eat your steaks. Rare. No. Don't do that. What if the thing was strangled, and this was a strangled animal, and I ate the meat from a strangled animal? Or what if this animal was offered to some foreign god, and I end up eating a piece of the meat from that? Am I defiled? Am I going to lose my salvation? Paul's going to show us, no, none of those things are defiling. It's just meat. Fornication is bore out all through the Scripture. It's its own category. So here's my question that I ask myself. Jeff, when James at the Jerusalem Council with the elders of Jerusalem, and no doubt Peter, and there stands Barnabas and Paul, are putting together this letter, does Paul already know by the revelation from the Lord being taught for three years in the Nebuchadnezzar Desert previous to this, does he already know these things that you're putting in this letter are not the way that it's being described, they don't need to become a burden and a yoke. But does he choose to concede and allow that as a concession and let that be put in there? In fact, the text says, being led by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul recognizes, right now for this phase, these new Gentiles don't need to be offending the Jews. And so they don't need to eat things that have been strangled or that have been offered to idols or that has blood in it. And so he concedes, but I'm, I'm almost, I think that's what took place. Paul demonstrates exactly what the Lord does. He doesn't make a big fuss. I, I'm, I'm going to dispute you on that. No, yeah, that's fine. That's good. Sounds good. I'm, I, I can sign off on that. I'm going to write a couple books later that are going to expand on that, but you get my point. Verse 27. A couple more thoughts and we'll be done this morning. However, not to give offense to them, go to... You probably saw this text and thought, oh, we're going to talk about the coin in the fish's mouth. Um, hardly any. <laughs> we had this others to get to, these uh, bigger principles. But I do want to point out one main thing. However, not to give offense, watch what the Lord says. Tells Peter, go to the sea, Sea of Galilee, cast a hook. He's normally a, a net fisherman. Take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel, a stater. A shekel equals four drachma. Take that and give it to them for me and for you yourself. What do you see? What have we already talked about this morning that comes up again? Do you see it? Do you see this quality of the Lord? The Lord knows that somebody somewhere out there is going to drop a coin. Did it fall out of a pocket? Did it fall out of a boat? Did it fall out of a bag? I have no idea. All I know is a shekel has fallen out at some point. And as it did, did it get five feet down and caught the sun? And here come fish. Swallows it. But it doesn't go down. It gets stuck somewhere in the mouth. The Lord knows somebody's going to drop a coin. It'll be in the Sea of Galilee. 
And of all the millions and millions of fish in the Sea of Galilee, some seemingly random fish is going to swallow that coin. And when Peter goes fishing at any place that he could choose, that exact same random, seemingly random fish that has this coin in its mouth, has an impediment in its mouth, is going to be so hungry that Peter's going to throw a hook. Does the hook have bait on it? Probably has bait. Maybe it doesn't. He's going to throw a hook. That same fish is going to bite, and it's going to be the exact amount that's going to meet the need for Jesus and Peter's tax. What does this prove? Write this down. The coin in the fish's mouth illustrates at least the Lord Jesus' omniscience and that he is sovereign and he's good. He's good. He gave the need to accomplish his will. That tells me, Jeff, when you're in my will, I'll provide, even if it takes unusual means, I'll provide what you need. And I've seen that over and over. Take that encouragement. When we're in the Lord's will, he'll provide. So my last line of thoughts here still comes out of back to verse 26. You ready? Let's finish this idea. You looking at verse 26? Here we go. When Peter said, oh, kings of the earth, they take taxes from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Then the sons are free. Let's finish with this thought. Sonship brings freedom. Sonship brings freedom. Who's Jesus talking about? Who's the son in view? Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. We know that. Jeff, do you think he's talking about anybody else? Do you think he's talking about Christians? Do you think he's talking about Peter? Do you think he's talking about Peter and the other 11? Are they exempt? I'm going to give you my opinion. I wouldn't die for this. I'm going to just throw it out. Listen carefully. At least 14 times in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about and discusses, mentions a parent, watch, a parent-child relationship between God, watch, and 14 times, not talking about the Lord, Jesus, the Son of God, the one and only Son of God by nature. At least 14 times in the Old Testament, the Bible refers to a parent-child relationship between God and Israel. 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 The dynamic is a national dynamic. The nation of Israel as a whole would be the child of God, this Son of God. Not like the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, but this chosen nation. Therefore, based off of that dynamic in the Old Testament, I'm going to propose to you that in the time of the Lord Jesus, no Jew would view themselves individually as the Son of God. You don't hear them ever referring to themselves as, I'm the Son of God, like I do. I'm, I'm the Son of God. I am a Son of God. I should say it that way. I am a Son of God. They would not say it. I am a Son. They would say that we, the nation of Israel, are the Son of God. So I think the dynamic here in what's happening, verse 26, 27, is that the Lord is in essence saying that he's exempt, but for the time being, Peter is still under obligation to pay the temple tax. Peter, Jesus doesn't have to. Peter, you still need to for a time, for a little while longer, for a little while longer. Write this down. I say that because I believe Jesus gave this timeless principle in verse number 26 then the sons are free. I think he gave that timeless principle about sons knowing that his soon approaching, fast approaching death would do three things. It would accomplish three things. Number one, it would pay for man's sin. 
So his death, which I believe now at this point is literally maybe two to three weeks away. I think that's where we're at in the timeline. Somewhere rough close to that. He knows that his death is going to pay for man's sin. Number two, because his death will pay for man's sin, it's going to now make all the activities down at the earthly temple obsolete. Number three, it's going to make it possible, so his death paying for our sin, making the sacrifices of the animals at the temple obsolete, it's going to make it possible for believers in Jesus to become the adopted children of God in an individual sense that goes beyond just the nation of Israel being the Son of God. We become a Son of God individually in the individual sense. I think that's what he's doing. So at that particular time, he's talking about just Jesus himself, but he's giving a timeless principle that moving forward after his cross would apply to all who put their faith and trust in Christ. And yet I still balance that with the, with the other principle that he gives in verse 27. So Peter, when the time comes and you officially qualify as a child of God after the death of the Lord on the cross and I've paid for your sins and surely sealed by the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost some 40 days later, then he definitely qualifies as a son of God. But at the time, you don't quite get there yet. It's coming in a few weeks. So you got your Bible. I'm literally going to just fly through these. Flip back. So we're done with Matthew. Look back. Actually, just look at the screen. First John chapter 3. Just look at the screen as you're finishing that other note. Watch what John writes to us. This is well after the death of the Lord and what I just discussed. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. So grace for you, hear this, hear this. Make it personal if you put your faith in Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. Okay, great, we get to be called. No, no, no. And so we are. We're called the children of God because we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Flip there. I would like you to go. Lastly, Romans 8. Flip over to Romans 8, and then we're going to take those last, what, four or five bullet statements based off of what we're reading here in Romans 8. Just read it. Ready? Romans 8, look at verse 14. So John says we already are the children of God because we put our faith in Jesus. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I don't think he's saying... Well, you got this class of Christian there, the led by the Spirit group. All of them are the sons of God. And you got these others who are not led by the Spirit of God. No, no, no. We could go back to verse 9 if you want to go glance over there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God. Are you led by the Spirit of God is the question you should be asking. Because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. We're no longer slaves. We're not just slaves anymore. We were slaves to sin. But you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption. So we have adoption. We become God's children by adoption. We're not natural children of God like the Lord Jesus is the one and only son of God by nature. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there's this tight, close relationship. So much so that it's not just this stiff father. It's this idea of daddy, Abba, close, intimate. But we're not done. Verse 16. The Spirit himself, this is a key verse, I hope you're listening. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit tells me I'm a child of God. 
If you ever ask someone, say, hey, let me ask you something about your soul. When you die and stand before the Lord, will he let you in heaven? I sure hope so. Listen, somebody that honestly believes that, I can't say for sure, but I sure hope so, you're talking to an unbeliever. All believers know they're believers. Some unbelievers think they're believers, but they're fooled. All true believers know they are believers. Where do you get that? Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Write these thoughts down quickly. Jesus says, then the sons are free. Children are free. Free from what? Number one. We're free from sin's penalty of eternal death. We're free. This is like a whole message here. We're free. Sin demands a payment, but I will not pay it. I'm not going to pay it. Jeff, you're not going to pay the penalty for your sins? Why not? Because I'm free. I don't have to pay it. (laughs) I'm never going to pay it. I'm just telling you guys. I'm not going to pay for my sins. I'm free. Not going to pay it. Don't have to. Somebody already paid it. Jesus did. Number two, we're free from bondage to our former master. Sin used to be my master. Sin still tries to call my name. There's some certain sin that's been calling someone in here, calling your name this past week. If you've been listening and obeying as it tells you, hey, obey me. Get over here and do this. You're acting like a slave. You need to say, no, I'm a son. I'm free. I don't have to obey you. I don't do what you say anymore. Tell your sin, no. Talk to your sin. Number three, what are we free from? We're free from the demands of the Old Testament with all of its sacrifices. I don't have to offer animal sacrifices. With all of its laws, I don't have to keep the laws of the Old Testament as a means of obtaining a right relationship with the Lord. I don't have to keep those. I don't do animal sacrifices to have a relationship with the Lord. I don't have to keep the law to have a relationship with the Lord. Why? Why would you say that, Jeff? Old Testament, all these Jews, that's what they lived under for for 1,500 years. True, I'm not in that era. I don't have to offer sacrifices. I don't have to keep the laws. I am free. Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. The sons are free. Number four, we're free from looking to a location or to a building as the primary place of communion with God. There's still an idea in the good old south of the United States that, boy, Sunday is the day you go to church and you get right with God. That's so prevalent in the south. What do you do on Sunday? Well, you go get right with God. What do you do when you leave church? Well, then you start sinning again. You get right back into that so that next week you got something to get right with. Listen, the sons are free. Don't buy into that. Don't buy that. That's so limited and restricted. Well, then, Jeff, what's coming to church for? This is the overflow of our relationship with the Lord where we've already been being right with God through the course of the week. We don't wait till we get to church on Sunday and get right with God. We're free from that. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. So I just told you some facts. Here's the facts. If you're a Christian, you're free from the demands of the law. You say, Jeff, I understand. I've never offered animal sacrifice. But do you let somebody here this morning, someone maybe listening online or viewing online or sitting here right now, You honestly think your relationship with the Lord is built on how well you keep the rules. You're living like a slave. You're free. The sons, the children, the sons and daughters of the Lord are free. We've been adopted. We're free. You don't have to pay that. 
Your relationship with the Lord. Your fellowship may get strained by sin, but your relationship with the Lord never changes. It's settled by Christ. Children of God, I'm talking to you. That's today's conclusions for you. We do not look to Sunday. We do not look to a building like the Jews look to feasts and fasts and a location down in Jerusalem. That's where you go to get right with God. That's where you go to worship God. That's where you go to commune with God. No, everywhere we are is a place to commune and worship and be right with God. Never wait till Sunday. Never wait and associate in your mind. That's where I have to go get right with God. No, we're free from that. Please buy into what I'm about to say. You, if you're a true Christian, you've trusted Jesus. This is a big one. This could not be said of the Jews in the Old Testament or the Jews in the day of Jesus. You, my friend, are free to approach God directly in the true, heavenly, holy of holies. No one else in their day could go into the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God behind the veil at the altar, at the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. No one could do that. But you and I can go in the very throne room of the universe, the very throne of God, and have a conversation anytime we want with Him free, freely, humbly, and yet boldly. So those are the facts. My question is, do you live like it? Do you live like it? Do you access your advantage of having free, direct access to Christ? Is there a sin that tries to rule you and enslave you? You need to know that you're free. And as I pray, I want to invite you, thank God that he's freed you from the penalty of your sin and from the depravity that you were born in. Christians are no longer depraved where Holy Spirit indwelt. Sin still tempts and attracts, but our attraction is even more for the Lord Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father and living in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He attracts us more and more and more, so live like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our text. Father, this is an unusual text. I was very nervous about it this week. Lord, I thought... Lord, you were there. First few times I read this, there was nothing in the text. Nothing there. We need to skip on to 18. But Lord, you've shown us this morning that you have a plan. Remind us it's all on schedule. The Lord Jesus is the central focus. You show us the plan in advance. If we'll listen, let us take the whole counsel of God. Lord, thank you for saving each one of us who put our faith in Christ, saving us from the depravity of our sin. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from the penalty of our sin. Lord, thank you for saving us from sin that was our master. Let us live like it this week. Lord, let us not view this building as a place that we go to get right with God only, but, Lord, as a place where we, just from the overflow, get together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and worship and fellowship and pray together. May we go forth in the power of that and live as children that are free this week and make others thirsty for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.